Welcome to the Mile High Five Podcast. My name is Carl, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Doug Huntington. And we have a very special guest today. Um, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, hello, my name is uh, Chris. So I would like to in- introduce you, actually. So Chris is on here for a very specific reason, and that reason is that I believe Chris is the Indiana Jones of personal finance. We're going to talk about his <laughs> adventures, but I think Chris is actually a little bit better than Indiana Jones because from watching, I'm trying to remember those movies, and it's been a long time since I've since I saw him. But wasn't Indiana Jones always trying to steal shit? So he must have not been financially independent, Indiana Jones, because he had to steal crap and try to sell it or whatever. I think, especially in the first movie. But you don't. You're like Indiana Jones without the theft, and you're already financially independent. So you might. And you're for real too, Indiana Jones is a fake person. So you're probably, you're the real Indiana Jones minus all the bad shit. Hey, you know what? I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. They made a lot of movies with that character. So it's a a good person. Now I met you for the first time a few, a couple months ago or so on a hike. So sometimes folks around here that have flexible schedules will hike on Thursday. So I, I met you for the first time and yeah, we had a lot of stuff in common, a lot of great conversations. And as the day went on, you you revealed more and more interesting things that you were into. Yeah, I think that might be my Midwest upbringing. Uh, you know, I was raised, taught not to stand out or kind of brag about yourself. And uh, it's hard to reconcile that when you're trying to do a lot of interesting things, but you don't want to be that guy who's kind of bragging all the time. And so, yeah, maybe I'm a fan of the slow roll as I get to know people. I think that's a good move just in general, because if you if you walked up and started talking about all the cool stuff you were doing, it seemed weird. So <laughs> I think you did the right thing. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I think our format for today, we'll talk about some of the crazy stuff you've done. It's a pretty amazing list of, geez, I haven't, I feel kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The opposite of superior. I feel kind of- uh, Inferior. Inferior. That's it. Boy, this is what happens when you record early and you don't sleep well. Yeah, I feel inferior. So anyway, we're going to talk about some of the cool stuff you've done, and then we're going to talk about some of the reasons behind it, why you might do stuff like this, uh, why it's not the goal in life. So let's get right into it. Uh, Chris, where where do we start? Or Indiana yeah, Chris, yeah. what should we call you? Uh, <laughs> wow. Oh, wait, d- you, you know, truthfully, Indiana Jones was one of my favorite movies growing up. And I've actually talked to my wife about this. Like, did the movies inform very young Chris's worldview? And so now that I have more time and space in my life to do a bunch of these things, I choose to do, you know, some that are like that or or was it just a movie I loved? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can I can give a quick start. Um so yeah, where did this all start? You know, I spent a career in in startups. So I'm an engineer by background. And um, my wife and I were both in startups and running 10,000 miles an hour, working 80 hour weeks. And I was trying to raise a round of funding for the startup I was at. And uh, this really successful sort of venture capitalist came in. He'd started and sold a bunch of companies. He'd invested in a bunch of others. Is worth probably somewhere close to a half a billion dollars. And um, he came in and he started talking to us and, you know, he, he threw his keys on the counter and he had like a Porsche key ring and like a Ferrari key ring. And like, I really believe he wanted us to see those key rings. And then he started chatting with us and he was 
talking about his vacation houses and kind of, it wasn't like he was really getting joy out of his wealth, but he was talking about his wealth a lot. And then we were trying to pitch him our business and get this funding. And um, he kept coming back to this money thing. And he was talking about how once you have this much money, it complicates your relationships in life. And then at one point he paused and he said, remember this time, this is the happiest you'll ever be. And it was a big deal to me. Um, Not right when he said it. I kind of glossed over it because I was thinking, money, 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 we got to raise the round. (laughs) But it was after this discussion, I went back to my desk and I was like, the happiest we'll ever be, really? Because this is miserable. I mean, my wife and I were working these really long hours. Um, I shouldn't say it was miserable. It had its own special kind of misery. Um, And, you know, my my co-founders were... One of them was really struggling with emotional outbursts and kind of the stress of being there. And I was like, if this is, if this guy has everything, he's continued down this path that I am kind of on, do I want that? You know, what, where will that end? And part of my running a thousand miles an hour was to try to get ahead in life, you know? And then at what point are you ahead? And what are you ahead of? And so it kind of, it got me thinking about how I wanted to devote my time. And ultimately, after closing that round, just to keep this story short, um, I made the decision to leave that role and kind of, you know, the tagline of what has become uh, a website that I run, Life Outside the Maze, um, came out. And that that tagline was, I'm going to kind of stop working for other people to make money and start working for myself, kind of more focused on happiness and what that means. And so that was, that was kind of the nexus of this transition. And, and I kind of also share it just to say, if we're going to get into like a bunch of crazy adventures and, uh, you know, bucket list items that you understand a little bit about my background, that I come from a very work centric and really busy schedule and then have stepped back into this. And I think it just gives some, some insight into maybe that I'm not doing this as a vacation, but more as a very active endeavor. I see it as no less important or I apply myself no less than I did before, just in different ways and spread out differently. So that's a little bit about, about that transition. I have one follow-up question. He said that that is the happiest you would ever be. Was that because he wasn't happy? So after that, you would make more money and that would lead to... So he was saying being rich would make you unhappy. So your current state, or was there some other reason behind that statement? Yeah, he, you know, he really didn't seem happy. I think his, I think his complaints about money and how his life felt at that point were genuine And so when he said it was the happiest you'll ever be, you know, being in startups has its own kind of happiness. You're building something. It's really exciting. Um, It's also super stressful. You don't sleep, you know, managing your stress is a really difficult thing. And, uh, and yeah, so I, uh, I took it to be, uh, I took it to be genuine. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, just thinking, trying to put myself in in his shoes and then your shoes at the time, 
he perhaps was thinking back like, oh, it was great when I was building something and I wasn't investing. And, you know, he has like what he thought he wanted and it's not what it ended up or ended up not being what he thought it was going to be something like that. And then you can't blame the money at that point. You can't blame not accomplishing things. Then it's kind of like all on you, I guess. So it's, it's all in his head. The money wasn't the problem, the success, building things that wasn't the problem. He, he's the problem. I think that's what I'm coming down to. Yeah, I think that and probably also that he built himself into a, a prison of sorts. I mean, like all that time away from work means a sacrifice perhaps in, in his relationships. And so some of those things with money and his loved ones might be a byproduct of that. I think also there's probably a component of if you're building up all this wealth and you're putting it into houses and cars you have to maintain that and manage it. And then you're managing a bunch of other things and you have to be careful about that trade-off of like cost benefit. Yep. And so how, how long ago was that? And then were, were you already on like a FI journey anyway? Or yeah, how did it yeah, all come yeah. together? Great question. So that was about two and a half years ago that I kind of made that transition. And I was... So prior to that company, I had started my own startup and then, you know, it had what what you call a soft exit in the startup world, which is it didn't really make a lot of money, but it didn't totally crash and burn. And so as I was winding that down, I tried to take some time off of work. You know, I had what you'd call like FU money or I was kind of, I was further than that. I was very close to FI or maybe FI by some terms, uh, but I didn't know it and I didn't think about it. And when I ended that, I spent a lot of time just doing nothing, right? Because when you're working, nothing sounds better than just sitting around doing nothing. And so I did that and predictably it was not fun and it ended up being slightly depressing. And so I jumped back into work. Um, And now after having this experience that I just described at the startup, I went into this next chapter a little differently. I said, look, if I'm going to step away from this and all the structure that a job gives you, um, I've got to replace it with something. And so I replaced it with kind of leaving that job. I had an idea of what my daily schedule is going to look like, what my routines are going to be. And I started, you know, that included, um, I took up Muay Thai kickboxing right when I left the job. It's something I'd always wanted to do. And so I knew that that would be like a routine I would I would repeat. I knew I would exercise, and that would be a routine I would repeat. I kind of used this sort of blog as part of that routine, more just to write and kind of get the ideas out, and um, that would be part of the routine. And so I had some structure there, right? And that was a that was a piece of it. I also knew that I love doing new things. I'm a generally super curious person, and I like having fun, and so. That's where kind of the list of adventures um, came from. You know, I like uh, I like variety. I like exploration, and I think we all have crazy, weird childhood dreams that we've always wanted to do. And what was stopping me? You know, at that point, um, when I did leave that job, we were we were comfortably uh, fi. And so, what does that mean? And how do I change my decision making? And that was kind of like. Uh, part of this list of adventures and how some of that started. How long were you lazing around on the couch again? Oh yeah. So between the wind down of the, and the startup of the next one, um, that's a good question. 
Jeez, I want to say it was probably... It, it It's kind of not a clean break because when you're winding it down, you keep saying like, is it really dead? Did I really try everything? There's a great piece of advice there actually that an old uh, mentor gave me and he said, you should you should give up your startup when you've tried, when you've answered all the questions and tried all the things, you know, to know whether it could be successful. But if there are other things that you haven't, you should, you really owe it to do those, right? Like that's how you know whether to abandon it. And so I kind of hemmed and hawed with that. So there wasn't a clean break, but I would guess it was around six months or so. Okay, nice. And I'm curious, Carl, because you had, you know, a time where you, you stopped working right away. What did you do right when you stopped working? Um, I stopped working and I immediately started working on something else. I had a code project that I was working on with a friend. So I took zero downtime. I The thought of being bored <laughs> is absolutely terrifying to me. It's worse than death. Oh man. And it's, that's maybe another topic for a, a whole other podcast, but I'm like, I want to put myself in situations where I can get bored because I think you have to deal with your thoughts and everything else like that too, which that's a deeper, a deeper problem, I think. But yeah. Any thoughts on boredom? E either of you? I'm better adjusted now. I've learned to <laughs> give myself, to make myself, I, we had a conversation about this recently, uh, like forced relaxation. So between this time and this time, I'm going to be away from technology. I can go for a walk. I can take a bike ride, but I am not going to be working whatever you interpret work to be. Yeah. I like that. I would, I would add, so a couple of thoughts on boredom are, uh, you know, one, I think when you're when you're in the trenches or leading anything, whether it's a job or a really intense endeavor, it can be tough to have the perspective. And so stepping back and forcing yourself to not do anything and just think can sometimes give that that insight and, and result in better decisions, better leadership. So I've used that. I also think, I don't know if boredom is the right way to phrase it, but taking time to stop and work on like meditation and mindfulness. It was, it's something that I started at the end of that startup. Um, not surprisingly, you know, when you're in a very high stress, high pressure environment, sometimes you got to get away and meditate for 10 minutes. Um, but it's something I really did a lot more over the past two and a half years or after I left the job. And that sort of purposeful stillness of the mind can really be emotionally satisfying and surprisingly clarify my thinking um, coming out of it. And so I guess I agree in that respect, Doug. Cool. There's also something I refer to often. There was a Stanford study about creativity and it stated that you're most creative when you let your mind be bored because then your brain kind of, uh, you, your brain doesn't want to be bored. It searches for things to think about and things to do. I think it's called the the Stanford walking study. So they suggest if you want to make yourself creative, if you want to try to be creative, you should just put, put your phone down, go for a, a quiet walk and just uh, be alone with your thoughts, which it's kind of sad in modern society. We're not often alone with our thoughts. You pull up to a stoplight and you look over and everyone's looking at their phones or in the line at the grocery store, we can't be bored for even a second, but mm -hmm. boredom has power. So you were coming out of this, um, like, I guess, period of, uh, well, maybe a little boredom, laziness. It didn't work well for you. And what we have really is sort of a bucket list. So can you talk about the synthesis of this and how it came together? 
Yeah. Oh, good question. So the synthesis of it and how it came together, um, you know, I'd start by just saying I've always had, I think we've all had, like when you're a little kid, you have these dreams of things you want to do. And then as you get older, a lot of these things somehow fall by the wayside. So I, of course, had those rough ideas in the back of my head and I just started writing them down. Right. And so I maybe had like 20 things immediately that I knew I wanted to do on this list. The other thing I did is I looked at, you know, methodologies. What are methodologies you could follow? And actually, this harkens back to a previous episode of your podcast when you guys talked about uh, the living AFI and kind of when he came back and uh, and reshared his update. Um, I used his methodology uh, when I created my bucket list, and I thought it was a great one. I looked around and found a bunch of them, but. Uh, Kind of what he recommends is sort of a hub and spoke model, if you know what that is, and uh, I'll describe it. Uh, you you basically think about your past self, your present self, and then your future self, and what those selves were inspired by and liked, and then you make so those might be, and he he added another one I think which was active, um, but you could add whatever groups you want. And then let's, I'll just use one as an example and say past self. So my past self, you know, I used to be a pretty competitive soccer player. And so I really like soccer. And so I'd have my past self and that would be my hub. A spoke coming off would be soccer. And then I'd say, what are things around soccer that still inspire me and excite me? And then I might write a list off of that. It might be, I've always wanted to see a World Cup game. You know, maybe I still want to come back and try to play again, even though I've blown out both my knees and I'm ridiculously uh, out of shape now. Um, <laughs> that, that'd be an example. And so I kind of used that framework and it was amazing. Like I sat down and I'd, I want to pass this to you, Carl, because I know you, you did a bucket list on your site as well. But like what was amazing to me was that I did this and suddenly I had like 110 ideas or something, things that, that jumped out. Um, so yeah, to pass to you, you know, like as a fan of your site myself, um, I, uh, I know you have a bucket list section and kind of how did yours come about? And I'd love to hear your background as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I could say that mine were anywhere near as, as thoughtful as yours, Chris, but, uh, they're just random things that come to my mind occasionally. <laughs> so there's, there's pretty much no thought behind it as well. I don't, I can't even remember what I put on there? Do you remember? And that might mean you're more advanced than me because I required some structure and you just did it. Like I'm a, I say the more talented you are, the less process you need. And maybe that means you're just like a savant. <laughs> <laughs> I would not say that, but my bucket list gets longer every day. I think of things every day that I want to do. I think it'll probably be longest upon my death because there's always some shit you read. Oh yeah, I want to do that now. I want to go there, do this thing. And Life has a lot to offer. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's something I've seen with my list too. And I, I think it's telling what you just said, right? Like, do you even remember what's on there? Like, so you haven't looked at yours in a while. I'm sure when you, well, let me ask you this. When you first left work, did you use it? Were you going through more items on that list and then you've kind of stopped focusing on it over time? Yeah, that that is true. When I left work, I'm like, I got to do this, 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 this. And then it's kind of faded as other priorities take over, other things you want to do. Um, the shiny new thing might not be as shiny as you think it will be. And one of them is literal. I don't even, if I put this on the bucket list, but owning 
a fancy car, which sounds kind of ridiculous and stupid right now as I'm saying it, but but that was one of the things I did. And then you get to that thing and you realize it's not what you wanted. There's there's a saying that I like that I don't remember where I where I read this, but it said the pursuit of the object is usually more fun than the actual like attainment of the object or ownership of the object. And I think that's true for a lot of things. And I think that's what life is about. It's more about the journey than the destination part of it. And yeah. maybe just figuring these things out. That's the fun part and actually doing them. That's kind of cool. But I think I'm getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts on there since you actually have crossed off many of your items. And I don't think I have. Yeah, that's well. So let me jump in on something you said. Is uh, you know what is this? What is the real value of a bucket list, right? Because what you said is it's really about the journey, and I totally agree with that. You know, the doing of these things is really just an excuse to have an experience. And I guess I'll even add to that. As I've gone through these, I thought I was having experiences. Really, I was building relationships. And so, like, I did, uh, you know, an archaeology dig in, in Wyoming, which we might talk about a little bit. And I thought, hey, this will be really cool. Um, the experience of just being out there and learning about it and doing it. But now I keep in touch with, you know, the, the head archaeologist and the museum director and email a little bit. And that's just fun to kind of see what's going on. Um, and these things keep going. You know, you think you're going to do one and then that'll be it. You'll go on to the next. Instead, I know all these people and they're still around and in your life. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a piece of it. I think also, like you said, um, when I when I started, when I left work, I naively thought, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to just tackle this list and this will be like the meaning in my life for a while anyway, until I get bored with it. It turns out it's not ever really the meaning. The meaning is some is stuff bigger, like like your loved ones, like you know, focusing on your mental health. And I mentioned positivity and optimism; those are big forces in my own life. Things like that really govern your day to day feeling of contentment and happiness. This is more like sprinkling in variety and giving yourself a reason to have experiences and create memories. And so. I mean, I agree in that respect. And I will say that as I've gone through this over time, I've done, I've focused less on, on the list and more, I'll look at the list occasionally to be inspired, or I'll look back and say, Hey, I kind of did this one, or I should take this one off because it's not important to me anymore. And maybe add this one on because it's on my mind. And then it just becomes a tool for like, you know, reflection and thinking about what's next. And one thing I noticed, I'm looking at the list here, um, almost all of these, I think they're not an object, right? They're not a thing like, hey, get a car, get a new guitar or something like that. It's actually an experience and you have to figure out how to go do that thing too. So a lot of people will say experiences are much better than like spending on an object or, you know, one thing we've done in my family is try to not give gifts over the holidays because we don't need like extra stuff or we don't want to exchange gift cards. It's kind of silly. So we try to go do things. So my siblings and I will go and uh, one year we played laser tag, which was a lot of fun. We bowled one year and we, we just try to spend time with each other. So we do have an experience and not just trade socks, for example, which is kind of pointless. So, I mean, I think 
is this a good point to start diving into some of the particulars and hear about it? Yeah, I'd like to make one other yeah. comment just about how you said the people part and how you keep in touch. So I, I had this fancy car and the best part of that was the people as well. And I remember, so it was an Acura NSX and there was a local NSX owners club. So one of the guys is like, yeah, man, going to have a barbecue. We're all going to get together and we'll, we'll cook out in my backyard. So I remember standing there, like all the cars are out front. We couldn't even see him. And we're all hanging out behind this guy's house and no one gave a shit about the cars, but, <laughs> but the cars are what brought us together. So it was the people. So it's popular to say that experiences are better than things. And I think they are, but I'll build on that and say experiences with friends and family and people we enjoy is better than just experiences on our own too. So do you want to hike the El Camino or would you rather do it with a, with a really close friend or make some friends on the journey? That, I love that point, and that's huge. You know, I have done a lot of these things alone. Um, and I was just telling my my wife this morning, because uh, at the end of the week, we we leave. She's taking a sabbatical from her role. She's still uh, still working in the startup, um, and we're going to Costa Rica for a month. And I, I said to her, oh, wow, I'm so excited to be doing an adventure with you. When you're out there doing these things alone, it's almost like... You know, they say if it's if you don't have a witness, is it even real? And I think there's there's something to that. It's like you go through this, but really, if there's no one to share it with, it's so much less fun and and rich. Yeah, good point. All right, well, I think we can start getting into a few of these. There's <laughs> there's some there's some fun ones here. Are there any that? Uh, what, what was the first thing that you did? How about that? That's a good question. The first thing I did, I mean, as soon as I left, I, I started doing Muay Thai. Um, that was the first one on my list. And actually, uh, I can share a funny story if uh, we've got the time. We do. Um, perfect. That's what we're here for. Yeah. So I started, I started Muay Thai. It's something I've always wanted to do is just like, th this is probably like a primal drive, but like, what if I'm walking down that dark alley and some scary dude jumps out? I don't even know how to throw a punch right now, you know? And so I've, I've always wanted to like have a few of those skills. And so I thought I would, I'd dive into this. And I started, uh, I, I looked around and I found the, the most legit uh, gym I could in the Denver area that trains these guys that actually do like mis mixed martial arts fights and, and all of that. And then I went in and they told me, okay, you know, as you're learning, you get a free half hour one-on-one -on -one with an instructor so he can kind of show you or she can show you the forms uh, of how to throw a punch, how to throw a kick, a knee, an elbow, all that. And so I'm like maybe a month into it and there's this instructor and, and he's teaching just like a kickboxing class over the lunch hour. And I'm like, wow, that guy has amazing form. He's the guy I want to have do this half hour. And so I go up to him after class and I ask him, hey, will you do this one-on-one -on -one with me? And he's like a little hesitant. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm super busy right now. If you really can't find anyone else, come back to me and I'll do it. And I was kind of like, oh, man, shot down. Like, what a jerk, right? <laughs> and then like I tell someone else that and they laugh at me and they're like, you know, he's the national Muay Thai champion. And he's <laughs> he's training to be part of the they were putting together an olympic team because they made kickboxing a provisional <laughs> olympic sport and he was like right in the throes of trying to make the olympic team and training and i asked him to show me how to make a fist and throw a punch it's kind of fun <laughs> that's awesome but yeah so that one uh 
that was the first one I did. And I still, you know, COVID kind of put a hold on it because you can't be grappling with a bunch of sweaty dudes when there's a pandemic going on. Um, but it's something I want to, I want to jump back into. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, the fitness of it, the, the confidence and, you know, learning, learning how to do this stuff has been, has been a lot of fun. Amazing. And did you have any like martial arts background before that at all? I guess I did, you know, like many kids that grew up through the eighties and nineties, uh, you know, I saw Chuck Norris and the karate kid and all that. And so there was a time when I was a little kid that I took karate and I think I made it up to a green belt or a purple belt. Okay. Maybe I was taking my purple belt test when I, when I quit. Okay. Well, and uh tangent, did you watch uh, Cobra Kai? <laughs> I did. I, I have a soft spot for like cheesy eighties plot lines and that one really harkens back to that. So yeah, I did. <laughs> It was pretty good. Carl, did you did you watch it or did you watch Karate Kid originally? Or? I was a Karate Kid fan, but I have never seen that show. It's really <laughs> fucking funny. It's worth checking out. Like I think it's better it's better written than the original movies, I think. Okay. And it has like Ralph Macchio and uh what's his name? Billy Zabka. Is that his name? Um, I just think of him as Johnny, right? Johnny, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's worth checking out. Very funny and uh it's on Netflix. Not it's not sponsored. Do they resurrect that weird thing they had at the end of the first Karate Kid where he's doing the, uh, this move is not defensible or whatever. Yeah, the crane that? technique. Yeah, the yeah. crane, the crane, that's it. Like, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of that. A lot of like bringing back the old, you know, old characters and old moves and stuff. It's it's awesome. It's it's a fun one to watch if you're not, if you're looking for like just some pulp, you know, something to like relax and watch with the, the kids or do like another activity while you're watching it. That's when I watch it. Okay. <laughs> there is our media pick. <laughs> All right. And then the archaeological dig. It's a lot of syllables for this early in the morning. So how, how did that come about? Yeah. I Again, maybe this comes back to the Indiana Jones as a kid thing, but I've always, you know, I know Carl's big into dinosaurs, right? And so you obviously think something about this. I uh, I've always been into the past and history and this idea of like, what do we not know? What mystery mysteries are still undiscovered out there? And so uh, discovering something archeological was something I always wanted to do. As a kid, I had, uh, I had three dream careers that I, that I had written down. And one of them was, I'm gonna be an archeologist when I grow up. And the other was, I'm going to be a professional chef. And then the third was, I'm going to be a, scuba diver who looks for sunken treasure. And, um, and so archeology span was on there and I thought, how do you get into this? You know, I'm an engineer by background. And, uh, and I kind of just started looking around until I, until I found something. So that's kind of how I got into it. But it was, that was a, a crazy adventure. It was, it was more than I expected. Where was it? Yeah. So the way this all came about is I live down by Golden, Colorado, and um, there's a a museum there in Morrison, and they do uh, the Morrison Formation is an entire you know dinosaur dig formation. There's I think they found the first Triceratops in that formation, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, I went to that museum. I started chatting with a guy, um, and 
he told me about another guy out in, in Wyoming and their kind of partner museums and how there's this, uh, there's this, uh, summer dig. And so I started saying, I want to get on this summer dig and, um, and that's kind of how it came about. So it's way out in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, in a place close to Glen Rock, if you know where that is. Nope. Now, I know where like uh, Casper is and Cheyenne, of course. So like, yeah, we're, we're in the state, like northeast or? Yeah, kind of central and a little, a little east of center. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So you got hooked up and then, then what happened? Yeah. So I, I went out there and, uh, it was, it was a week long. I signed up to do this thing for a week. I told my wife about it. And this is actually like a general theme of these stupid slash cool things that I do. Um, <laughs> I told her about it and she was like, wait a minute. So you're going to go out into the middle of Wyoming. It's the middle of like July or August. It's like a hundred degrees. And then their sun is just beating down on you and there's no shade anywhere. And you're going to dig in the dirt for a week. And that's kind of like how she saw it. I saw it as like, this is the coolest thing I could possibly do. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I drove out there and um, I, uh, it was, it was, it was fully immersive. You know, I was kind of expecting that I would get there and they would say, don't touch the, don't touch any of the tools, kind of sit there and watch. And instead it was kind of like, get in, we need all the help we can get. You know, this is not a heavily funded area. Um, and they it's, it's a nonprofit museum, you know, and so they're doing everything on donations. And so first day I jumped right in, I got, you know, my, my tools, I started with the pickaxe doing what they call debridement, which is pulling down like six to eight feet of top dirt before you get to the strata where the good stuff is. And then you use increasingly smaller tools as you get down toward the bones. And, um, so yeah, the, jumped right in and started doing it. And, uh, I don't know if it was the second or third day I was there. Suddenly this newspaper reporter shows up and I'm like, I'm like, what, what's going on here? Like I knew, I knew a little bit because, uh, Sean, who, who leads the, uh, uh, the effort there, um, he told me that there, you know, we started to uncover some bones and they had already uncovered a few, but after we had uncovered more, it turned out um, this may be the most complete torosaur skeleton ever found. And uh, as he had uncovered, he called the media over to kind of draw attention, maybe get some more donations and financial backing for this. So suddenly there's this newspaper reporter there and I'm like an archaeologist for two days. <laughs> and there was a really funny sort of like benefit to that is all these other people who were really into it, the reporter would talk to them and they're like, yes, so if you see the shift of the plane in the strata exposed from the Jurassic period, you know, it's very technical. And the newspaper reporter wants like average guy on the street comments for the readers. And so this article comes out and it's like featuring me for some reason, you know? <laughs> and so like, I'm, I'm pretty prominent in this article and I totally don't deserve it. Um, and then maybe on the, uh, on the second or third day, I, my pick hit something and I found a, a rib of this, uh, Taurosaurus and got to uncover it and got to cast bones and preserve them and map the site with a compass and everything. And it was just like, it was one of those that was more than you'd expect, you know? 
Wow. That's crazy. What, what, um, did you have like a prominent quote that was like silly? You're like, Oh my God, I, I found a bone. They just handed me a shovel or something. <laughs> oh man. I know I did, but I'm drawing a blank on what okay. they were. That's great. I think, I think, uh, Sean said, I think the reporter was actually talking to us and Sean said, and this very well is, it's likely to be the most complete Taurus or skeleton ever found. And I was like, Really? <laughs> and that made the article like that quote and then i had a huge i had a huge blister on my hand and that was in the article too it was like you know like standing there dripping in sweat in the 110 degree heat with a giant half dollar size blister on his hand he's all smiles and laughs you know like that was that was the profile that's fantastic <laughs> since the the other folks were experts they dedicated their lives and so many hours of research and you just roll up from denver you're like hey guys. It, it's not fair right sometimes it's not fair and they are hit and miss right like some of these you think you're gonna love and then don't and others like like this turn out better than you expected so do you think there's archaeologists who read this story that have been digging for like two decades that haven't found shit, and then this guy shows up <laughs> and after two days finds this incredible thing like cursing you like ah! I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. And what motivates? I mean, what motivates someone to do this over a career? Is it notoriety? Is it curiosity? Is it the academia of it? Like that's a good question. Um, I don't think anyone was that jealous, but it was certainly a thrill. It was really funny. And did, did you do any other digging or was it just a week long? Yeah. Deal? So, so I just did that week and then, you know, that's the thing, right? As I thought this would be something I'd only do once. I do kind of find myself wanting to go back with COVID. They were uh, delayed and kind of uncovering the rest of this thing. And it'd be fun to kind of finish the job and go back and, and help out some more. And so, uh, yeah, I could see myself returning. I I want to hear, I want to hear your reaction to this, Carl, just because of the whole dinosaur tie-in um, that I know you have on your on your blog and in your background. What's your What's your thing with dinosaurs? <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Well, before I answer that, I have a sh very short story about dinosaurs in Wyoming. I, I actually have some relatives up there, and they're like, "Hey, we got you this dinosaur artifact for." for for uh, Christmas or my birthday or something like that. I'm like, oh, cool. I can't wait to see what it is. So they give me this little chunk of something and they're like, oh, do you know what this is? I'm like, nope. They're like, it's coprolite. Do you know what that is? I'm like, nope. They're like, it is dinosaur shit. I'm like, ah, thanks. <laughs> and I know how you feel about beeps, but so I have a piece of dinosaur shit in my house. But yeah, nice. yeah, I don't know. Uh, dinosaurs are more of a math and physics type of science person. But, but I really like the Dinobots, the Transformers. And, and I still have them, by the way. I, I've got three of the original. I think there were five Dinobots. And I had this little dinosaur toy as a kid. And it kind of became a thing in our life where we would take it around to. And we still do this. We take it around on vacation and take pictures of it. As a matter of fact, the uh, post on my blog right now are the dinosaurs at a car museum. So people, the general public must think I'm insane because here I am in front of this Lamborghini Countach. And I've got these little... I'm trying to pose little plastic dinosaurs and get a picture of them in front of this, <laughs> in front of this Lamborghini. But I am kind of jealous of you. I, if you go back there, maybe I'll go up there for the week too and help them out too. That sounds pretty awesome. And it, it probably gets pretty tedious at the end or more detailed because at that point you're using like toothbrushes and little picks, right? You don't want to 
the bones are very fragile once you, you yeah, them, right? Yeah, and I will I'll actually come clean on something on that point is uh, -oh. uh <laughs> um you know when I first started doing this uh I it was one of the bones I was working on maybe the second or third one and I I'm working on it working on it and then all of a sudden Sean Sean Smith is the director of the the Paleon Museum out there who who kind of was running the dig and um actually if you're interested I could I could get you in touch over there. But uh, he looks down and he's like, Chris, tell me what's going on right now. <laughs> Very calmly, because he's the most patient man, right? And I look down and I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm trying to uncover this bone. And he's like, and what do you see? And I'm like, well, I see, you know, and I look down and I, I'm suddenly seeing the inside of the bone. And I, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to be seeing that. And I had just started to hack away at the side of the bone. And so uh, he very, very calmly redirected me, and I didn't make that mistake again. Um, but, you know, that's how you learn, right? And this stuff is uh, this stuff is taking one dinosaur skeleton out of the ground can take 10 years. And so this is something I didn't know. You know, you go to a museum, you see one sitting there, and you're like, that's cool. Let's go see the next exhibit. And that took 10 years of an entire team to pull it out, cast it, preserve everything, reconstruct it, and then set it. And that's wild to wow. me. Wow. Yeah, that's insane. There's a, a great museum, uh, Museum of the Rockies up in Bozeman. Have you been to that one? Yeah, by yeah. The way? Yeah, great museum and just understanding how long it takes to get a skeleton out. Because like you said, you just walk through, you're like, oh, whatever, you know, no, no big deal. And one thing I just want to confirm, you said – there's about six to eight feet of like just topsoil, sand, whatever, um, before you get to any of the interesting stuff. Well, yeah, at this particular site, and I'm not, I'm no authority on this subject. Like you, Carl, I, I find this stuff fascinating. You know, dinosaurs are around for something like 145 million years on the earth. We've been here too. That's kind of cool. Um, but I don't know all the, all the technical stuff. Um, but to answer your question, this site, there was that much, what you know, over the top. But it depends how the how the rock tilts up, and so everywhere you're finding dinosaurs is really just a spot where there's been some geologic activity, and there's been a, a tilt up in the in the strata, and you can kind of get at the stuff that's down there easier. In this case, it was eight feet down, but sometimes it's right on the surface, sometimes it's deeper. Gotcha. And then the other. You are the expert here, so I'll just ask and see if you know. So, I, I mean, I was in the newspaper as a professional. <laughs> the, the big quote is, really? So yeah, yeah. that said, there are like fossils everywhere, all over the world, all over the place, but usually it's nowhere close to the surface because there's not the geologic activity that you described, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and anywhere where there were conditions present for fossilization you can get it but it's always usually buried and that's like water and minerals and things lead to fossilization which actually is another funny th you know when you don't know anything you can ask a lot of dumb questions so like while i was on this dig um sean was talking about that and i i asked him i'm like wait a minute so you're telling me there could have been like a tyrannosaurus rex that's like 10 times as big as the ones we found but it hated water and so None of those skeletons were ever fossilized. And he's like, I guess. 
<laughs> Sounds like an idea for a movie. Oh, wait, they already did that. Godzilla. <laughs> All right. And anything else with the with the dig or dinosaurs or archaeology that you want to tell us about? I mean, you know, you'd mentioned how you, how you got the piece of dinosaur crap. Um, <laughs> one of the things that was cool from this dig is we we were casting all these bones and pulling them out of the ground. And the rib that I found, you know, I was like, wow, this was my discovery. And no one had found anything in that area yet. And then I kind of poked down and then we found a whole bunch of bones. And so it was really cool. And um, after we kind of casted it and pulled it up, I looked down and I asked Sean, like, so, you know, a fossil is really just a record of anything from the past. And so because the rib was pressed into the rock there, I could see the whole surface of the bone imprint left in the rock. And I said, what happened to this? And he's like, nothing. And I asked him if I could just chunk it out and take it with me. And so at home I have, you know, the fossilized imprint of the rib I found, which is now in that museum. And it's just kind of a cool memento. Like, it's not like, it's one of those things that when you see it, going into this, this whole like pursue a bunch of adventures, I thought that, it would be an exercise in doing what you thought you wanted to find out it really doesn't matter that much and then you can concentrate on living your life. And often that's true, but it also brings a lot of joy. You know, you mentioned like experiences versus things. And now like every time I walk by and I see that little thing, it's more about, it's like a reminder of the experience and it does it does like bring a smile to my face every time I walk into my office and I see it there. It's kind of cool. That's very cool. Nice. All right. One of the other big things, another Indiana Jones type <laughs> situations. I love this Indiana Jones theme. Let's go with it. Dr. Jones. Well, the, the big problem, there's always evil people in the Dr. Jones uh, movie. So we'll come back to that. You must have an adversary or... <laughs> I would say maybe a nemesis of some kind, but don't answer now. We'll come back to it. Oh, no. All right. So we have the uh, sunken treasure on a 1715 fleet of Spanish um, shipwrecks. Yeah. What's up with that? Yeah. So this is the one I just got back from doing this um, beginning of July. You know, I was just down in South Florida and um, it's, I guess it's similar to the first one. So a little bit of backstory. Um, Like I... Like I shared a moment ago, the three things I wanted to be as a kid, one of them was a chef, one was an archaeologist, and one was this sunken treasure diver. Scuba diving has always been something I've I've been curious about. And when I was 17, I went out and got certified at a granite quarry in the middle of Minnesota because there's no real ocean there to dive. Um, and then um, at some point I heard about, the first thing I ever heard about with this stuff is the Atosha, which is a shipwreck. It was, they found the main hall in the 80s and it was like $400 million worth of gold and silver and, and jewels. And um, as a kid, you know, that made my jaw drop, just the dollar amount. And then the idea that there are these old shipwrecks along the U.S. coast. And so uh, it turns out there's, there's over a thousand shipwrecks kind of along South Florida and down along the Keys. And um, a lot of them are Spanish and a lot of them are from the 1700s when they would send over ships to kind of fund the Spanish empire. You know, that's how they, they, 
they would bring back gold from the Americas and, um, and then hurricanes would come and every once in a while, a fleet of these ships would get dashed against the rocks and then you got all these wrecks. And so there's the, a lot of them were recovered. Um, you know, in the, in the sixties, there was kind of like a heyday of recovering these and, uh, just like tradesmen, plumbers and carpenters would go out and find these black discs on the beach and start polishing them up. And they're like, wait a minute, these are silver coins. And then they would find a shipwreck offshore and kind of fast forward to today and kind of what got me into this. Um, there, it's something I've always wanted to do was dive one of these old shipwrecks. And a lot of them are, are secret, you know, because people are still working the sites. And then a lot of them are uh, protected national sanctuaries. And so what I just got back from was uh, diving the 1733 fleet um, actually saw a ship called El Infante, which is from 1733. It's on the bottom and it's still, the hole is still there. And so I actually swam kind of through the cross timbers of the ship and it was like, Again, another moment, a lot like dripping in the sun in Wyoming, um, being down there, you know, 25, 30 feet down and swimming through this hole, it just, it brought this giant smile to my face. Like when you think of that this was, you know, 300 years ago and, um, and all these chips went down, it was really exciting. And then I also, um, we went to a site where there was a, uh, a cannon that had fallen off of one of these ships. It was on the bottom and a coral reef had encrusted around it and got to dive around this cannon with a bunch of crazy characters who are modern day treasure hunters. Um, and I guess, I mean, I could get into how I met these guys and all of that, but that's another topic. That dive, that first dive, kind of seeing all this stuff was my dive test. You know, can Chris really dive? Can he be part of the the uh, the salvage um, operation and um, I passed that test and so then we went out and I was able to actually dive on uh, on the 1715 wreck which you can um, get a permit from the state from uh, the state um, and and work for uh, for sunken treasure and um, and so got to go out and dive with uh, some of these very experienced sort of treasure hunters and go down and, um, and do that. And it was just a huge thrill to be there and kind of like go through all that. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think of Carl is speechless. <laughs> so how did you get hooked up? Cause I, right. You're thinking, Hey, I want to do this thing. And you know that there's folks out there yeah. and they probably don't trust any random person, right? You said you had to do the test. So how do you get hooked up and what's the process like to actually like make this happen? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there's a, there's probably about a half a dozen to a dozen boats that are working that area in any given year. And, you know, they're legacy legacy relationships back from like the sixties when all these guys were going out and, and finding all this stuff. And it comes down to finding a guy who's on one of those boats. And so I kind of, I found one of them on the, on the internet, he had a website. And the way this started recently is I went on a family trip down to Key West just to kind of, um, do a vacation. And I thought, Hey, 
I know these wrecks are out there. I know some of them are in this national sanctuary. If I could find where they are, maybe I could see one. And I started talking to this guy and he, he hooked me up with another guy who he thought could get me out there to dive it. And that all fell through. But that was the start of a relationship, you know, back to my Italian before and kind of talking to this guy, you know, three months later, they ran a sort of workshop where they'll teach you how to, you know, the methods of preserving things you find, of getting the permits, of finding things and running a metal detector underwater and all sorts of things. And, uh, and so I said, well, I'm coming down for that for sure. And then we'll do this dive and, um, you know, if it all works out at that point, the, if I pass the dive test, they were willing to let me, let me sign on. Um, and so kind of that's, that's the progression of how it all happened. But I will tell you, just when I dove into the water the first time, it's like I dove in, I had way more weight strapped around my, my waist than you normally dive with, because the goal when you're doing this this salvaging underwater is to be right on the bottom. So I jump in, immediately sink like a stone, and I just kind of moderately panicked. You know, I'm I'm underwater and I can't get back up and I I didn't have a a BCD because of the the rig we were using for diving. It's a little technical. Um but yeah, so I sink down to the bottom, I'm down there like a stone and I'm panicking. And then I tell myself, like, just just breathe. I try to use the metal detector. I'm not hearing anything. And I'm like, what's going on? And I realize the there's a little disc, and you put it under your dive mask, and it presses against your skull, and it kind of works like a cochlear implant. It just vibrates your head and creates sound in your brain, <laughs> and that's how you know you've hit something with a metal detector. And that had fallen out when I kind of fell to the bottom, and so... I just said to myself, wait a minute, you're worked up, you know, and that's like part of diving is you're supposed to relax, check all your gear, get all your stuff together, got it all together. And I started sweeping that metal detector and it was just like, you know, you think back to this progression, like I was in third grade, I would draw these pictures of myself, like underwater diving with sharks in a treasure chest. And, <laughs> and now here I am, how many years later, actually doing it and doing it on a boat that, you know, is storied. It's a boat that found millions of dollars of Spanish treasure, including something they call the Queen's Jewels, which was kind of like some, some jewelry from the 1715 fleet. So it was one of those really thrilling moments, you know, and probably like the dinosaur imprint, I'll be able to look back and it'll bring a smile to my face kind of in the day to day. So it was, it was really cool. Cool. What percentage of these wrecks have been found? Do they have any idea how many sank in the first place? And are they all mapped out? Is <laughs> it you, secret where some of them are? You said this is kind of like a closed community. And I'm I'm laughing, thinking, are you? Do you have a plan here, Carl? Are you gonna, <laughs> are you going down there with a raft and a snorkel? <laughs> um, we'll, we'll talk about that after after the recording. No, the yeah. So um, when they went down, the Spanish sent salvage operations. You know, because there's there were in in the case of the uh of the seventeen fifteen fleet i want to say there was maybe over a billion dollars um on that one um and uh so they they send these salvage operations but they didn't have any dive equipment back then and so it'd be like some poor schmuck that would have to they'd poke him and say 
get down there and then he would dive as deep as he could and they could only get a little bit of it. And then as technology got better, you know, you think back to like the fifties and the sixties when these guys started and really it was like, um, a couple of things happened. One scuba diving was invented, you know, and started to become available. And two, these mine sweeping devices, metal detectors from World War II came back in the 50s. So you've got metal detectors and you got diving equipment. And boom, people start finding these things. And so like, then there was another whole salvage boom. Um, and so kind of originally, they probably recovered, depending on the fleet, you know, I think the 1715 fleet, they recovered most of it. Um, the 1733 I can't remember exactly, maybe about half of it, somewhere in there. Um, today, how much is out there? It's a it's a question, right? You ask like some old maniac treasure hunter sitting in the pub at the local marina, and he's going to be like, yeah, there's mi- billions of dollars of treasure. <laughs> you ask the official manifests, and there's far less. But the funny thing is that these ships always carried loads of contraband. And so they might have like you know, 300 million on the manifest, but they might have another 150 million that doesn't have the tax stamp on it. And that's going to be used for bribes and paying people along the way to get back. Interesting. So, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. So there's a fair amount out there. Estimates range that, you know, there's over a billion dollars of, of literal Spanish gold, silver, and gems just scattered along those reefs still today. Wow. And what happens to the treasure that's found and recovered or whatever. Yeah. So you're getting to the giant downer of this story in a way for me is like, I did this whole dive, right? And I was like, yes. And when that metal detector finally went off and it beeped, it was like, oh my God, what am I going to pull up from down here? And what I pulled up was what they call these EOs or encrusted objects. And so it's, you know, over 300 years old, it's metal. And so it starts to oxidize unless it's gold, which still remains perfectly pristine when you pick it up. Um, so I started pulling all these EOs out and that, that was the treasure. So I found, I think something like seven, seven or eight of these EOs and they are either a nail, a musket ball, you know, maybe a piece of jewelry with emeralds and silver, like who knows (laughs) until it goes to the lab. And that's the answer to your question is all of these things, go to a lab where they are treated in these in these tanks um they use like uh elect an electrolysis or like electrical process to kind of treat the the minerals and metals and restore them and get them out of all the gunk and that that will happen sometime toward the end of this hunting season and then i'll know if i actually found treasure or just some rusty nail from the side of the ship (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. You found something though. Cause I imagine you might not like just going down and yeah, there's a lot of dead time, I guess. Well, and a lot of it, you know, is all a credit to, uh, to the, the crew that I was out there with. Um, one of the guys I had the pleasure of diving with is named, uh, Carl Fismer. He's in his eighties. He's a legendary treasure hunter. I mentioned, uh, I mentioned the Atosha and how they found hundreds of of millions of dollars of treasure. And he was a part of that. He's found many other wrecks around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, he's in his eighties, he's had five cancers. He's still kicking. He's still out there 
hunting for treasure and diving. And so it was, it was a real thrill to be able to, uh, to meet those guys and kind of learn from them as a total newbie again. Um, and that's, that's probably why we found what we did, which was fun. Cool. Do you have any dives coming up or? Yeah. So this is another weird thing about, you know, all of these, all of these little adventures you do have their, have their barriers, right? Things you got to, whether it's like a relationship barrier or a permit barrier or the money or the time, they all have barriers. And in this case, um, and this is a long winded answer to your question, in order to dive one of these sites, you can't just be some tourist, you know, they don't want people going out there and, uh, you know, someone pays to dive a site and then they disturb something and it can't be preserved. And so you have to be officially part of the salvage partnership. And so for me to do this, I am officially a 1% partner in the salvage operation for the uh, season. And what that lets, what that uh, gives me is 1% of, you know, whatever we have after the state takes the, uh, you know, they take like 20% of the most historically significant stuff of which there's not much left. That's another whole story. Um, and then, um, we, we split up the rest. And the other part of it is that as a partner, I can go back and dive whenever there's space on the boat. And, um, and so I hope to return again before the end of this season, which, uh, which is sometime around September is when the season ends and the, the seas get too rough to do this sort of stuff. Okay. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. And just to tie it back to another eighties movie, Apparently you're taking all your prompts, uh, Goonies, right? So <laughs> yeah, Goonies yeah. is, uh, that movie. All right. Ne well, is there anything else with the diving treasure hunting? Oh, I mean, I could of course talk about it all day, but yeah, it's funny. You mentioned the thing about the Goonies. Um, there's a character in that, right? Who, if I remember, there's some character that's really into the history and one eyed Willie and his gold. And he's all like, we have to you know, we have to like honor this history. And then there's other people that are like, it's just, it's just a bunch of gold. Like, let's take it and do something with it. And I think that's an interesting angle. My, my wife is more in the camp of like, why would anybody go out and do this? You know, like, even if it's like, in this case, it's a little more tangible because it's gold and silver. But what if it wasn't, you know, what if it was just, you're pulling up old artifacts and you're, you're having an adventure. Um, some people think, you know, some people place great meaning on this and others think it's kind of pointless. And really you could almost say that about any endeavor in life, you know? And yeah. so you gotta, you gotta make your, make your choices there. Hmm. Yeah. It's a good movie. <laughs> so much a thousand times. Here's a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to the Economy Conference. The Economy Conference, and that's spelled E-C-O-N-O-M-E. -E. I'm not good at spelling out loud, so just bear with me. Well, it has roots in the fire movement. It's going to be awesome this year. Carl's actually going to be speaking. 
So that'll be pretty fun. And you may wonder why attend an event about financial freedom when you can educate yourself online or listen to podcasts like this one. Well, community matters very much. And when you decide to take an unconventional path, you may need a little support. Economy gives you the opportunity to surround yourself with an engaged community of people who are doing incredible things with their finances. Whether you're well on your way to financial independence or still struggling with debt, or maybe you're a student and you're about to launch your career, Economy is a great place to uh, meet other people and get more involved in the FIRE community. And actually, we talked to Diana Merriam back in episode 14. Now, I haven't personally met her yet, not in person, and I thought we were actually going to meet at Camp Phi, but she had some travel issues and she actually did her presentation remotely, which was pretty amazing. There were no technical issues and she did a great job. So I'm looking forward to checking out Economy in November. I recently got my ticket, so I'm looking forward to attending, checking out Cincinnati. I've only been to the airport, and I'm really looking forward to getting some of that weird spaghetti chili concoction from whatever restaurant it is, but it'll be awesome. Hopefully, we'll see you there. Back to the show. Is there anything, Carl, that you want to hit specifically here? I've been kind of... Yeah, there are a couple I want to talk about, and there's two of them I want to talk about in the same conversation because I think they both speak to something and that's your music album and a screenplay so I've seen you play guitar you're very good at that and I remember talking to you a short time ago and you said someone noticed your playing and wanted to produce you right or something like that and you're (laughs) gonna you're gonna do that soon but then apparently you've also written a screenplay which I just found out about today which is pretty cool so you can do your own soundtrack to your screenplay (laughs) yeah that's it's funny. Um, so how did all this come about, your music and your screenplay endeavors? Yeah, so, you know, music's been something I've done forever. And there's actually, I'll, I'll give a little interesting tie-in here, which is we're talking about a bunch of weird things I've done. I'm kind of a dilettante at all of them, right? And that is, they say if you want to be an expert in something or you want to make a lot of money, you need that compound interest and you need your 10,000 hours or whatever it is. And, um, you know, when you, when you, when you've got Phi, it kind of gives you the luxury of being more broad. And it's something I've always wanted to do. You know, Da Vinci and the Renaissance man was a model I've always admired. And so I do a lot of these things and I'm afforded that ability because of of this position. And I'm super grateful for that. Music, to get back to what you said, is one that I have done forever. I've done it, you know, since I was 14, I was writing songs before I could play the guitar. Um, And then I've done it over the years. It's always been my outlet, you know, like my creative expression when times are tough, the guitar is in my hand and I'm writing a song, you know, stuff like that. And so I've, I've done a number of albums. Um, you know, I, back in college, I started with a four tracker where you had to t- flip over an old cassette tape and you got two tracks per side um, with the stereo left and right on that track. And you, then you have two tracks per side. And so you could record four tracks, like a drums, a guitar and two vocals. And then I've, I've done it ever since. And so it's, it's something I've done for quite a while. Um, 
this latest music project, it was, I've always wanted to do a series of duets. Uh, I've never been able to write harmonies very well. And I thought, let's try that. And so during COVID, you know, talk about when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. What can I do? What adventures can I do around my house? You know, if I'm not traveling and going to galleons and archaeology sites and this music project was one of them and so uh, I found a woman online uh, whose voice pairs really well with mine and started working back and forth with her uh, in a basement studio and then kind of put together a bunch of tracks Um, to your point about this producer I kind of just then boldly sent them off to a bunch of really like big name producers that I'd love to you know, work with and knew that I'd have no shot in hell, you know, that they'd respond. And they didn't <laughs> until one did. And uh, and so one responded and I'm not going to like, I won't get into who it is because, you know, we haven't started it yet. He's busy and the thought is to do it in the fall. Um, and I'm really hopeful that that happens. Uh, if it Oh, we got a we got a a dog just ran into the room, which is awesome here. Um, if it doesn't, I'll still complete the project in another way. But as it stands right now, we're we're slated to to go into this production process in the fall. And so I've recorded vocals and guitars, and then we'll kind of flesh out the compositions and do mixing and mastering and all of that fun stuff. Um, the screenplay, back to your question, is a is a totally opposite thing, right? That's something I've never done. I'm, I haven't put in my 10,000 hours at all, um, but I love movies. And uh, this actually happened when I was down in the Keys on that family vacation I mentioned a little while ago. I happened to rewatch the movie, The, the Edge. It's, it's some cheesy movie where Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin battle, battle a bear out in the middle of the wild. And it kind of inspired me to write this screenplay I'd always been kicking around in the back of my head. And, you know, because of my situation, I had no excuse and I started doing it and I kind of pounded out a, pounded out a draft. And where it sits now is uh, my uncle is actually a playwright. Uh, he has been for 50 years or something. And uh, I sent it to him and he's given me some feedback on it. And so... You know that one's kind of a a uh, an adventure in learning, whereas the music music piece is more like I would say I've put in my maybe more than ten thousand hours, maybe like fifty thousand hours, and and I'm working on something I hope is really impactful there. Nice. And you mentioned um, like a basement studio. Is that something that you had put together? Or you kind of had some things around anyway, or yeah. Um, yeah, I put together a little basement studio. Uh, I finished off our, we had an unfinished basement and we finished it off and kind of did some of it ourselves and hired someone to do some of it. And when I did that, I said, now is the time I get my studio. And so I got my little side room um, with a studio. I, I built it out. It's a pretty basic studio, but it runs Pro Tools and gets the job done. And then as a you know wife compromised, she got her her yoga room and exercise room which is also a spare bedroom so she gets a little bit a little bit cheated on that front <laughs> <laughs> that's cool very awesome and with the 
you're writing the screenplay like how long is it can you tell us anything about it uh just general thesis or prop plot line oh like, yeah tagline? so um yeah that's an interesting one so it's about it's kind of a coming in a coming of age story about a young guy who grew up in rural canada you know much of canada is totally unpopulated you look at a population map of canada and the people are all along the border. And then you have this giant area of Canada with no one there. And there's this area of Canada called the Canadian Shield. And you could walk into it and not see another person for days, you know, miles and miles, maybe 50 miles, 100 miles, who knows. Um, and that that always fascinated me going up there. And so I'm, I was kind of inspired by the place and the town and the sort of rural uh, customs and people. And then put together this screenplay it's a coming of age story about a guy who left that town always hated it and then his father is killed by a bear and uh you know part of the local tradition is that this is actually true once a bear kills a human it sees humans as food and it's a it's a danger um and so it has to be killed and they found this out I think it was back in the 60s or something, they let a bear go. I think it was in Yellowstone because they thought it was just protecting its cub. And within a week, it killed another human. So they had to put that bear down, unfortunately. And so anyway, in my in my cheesy movie, um, the guy goes back for the, for the funeral and he goes back because he's going to get the inheritance and that kind of is his carrot to get him back. But then he's sucked into whether or not he's going to go out and and hunt this bear and and take care of it and um that's kind of the plot line and then he discovers something about himself as he goes out into the woods nice yeah that's pretty cool can i have like a minor part in it like i'll just be the guy standing in front of the general store that you see for like one second when the <laughs> camera pans through the town that would be awesome i'd appreciate that yeah Doug, Doug's more handsome than me. Doug could play the leading man, maybe. Uh, I'll be the second victim or something like that of the bear. <laughs> that's See, that's the one of the things about writing a screenplay is, you know, if you write a story, it's done, right? And you can show it to people. You write a screenplay, it's going to cost like millions of dollars to even make a B-rate picture. And so it kind of puts, puts your dream a little further away. I don't know where this one will go, but... It's been a lot of fun just kind of like writing it and and getting it out. It's something that it's a story I've been thinking about for years and years. So it's it's fun to have time to to do something like that too. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I don't know if this helps at all, but a producer friend of ours is coming through town uh, next week. I think we're gonna have dinner with him on Tuesday. So he, he was more into TV shows than movies, and I think he's producing a Broadway musical right now. Maybe he could help you out with a musical version of this. Uh, <laughs> Hey, maybe that's how they come together. That's where this was going. You know, I've got the music thing. I've got this. We turn it into a musical. Could be like Hamilton in Canada. <laughs> I, I hear some ominous pair music, some minor chords, sad chords. I have a, a, I have a question, not on any of these things, but you have a very, you're a very eclectic person who's done a lot of interesting, very different things. How did your, what do your parents do? How did they, do you think... This is a nature versus nurture question. Was it how they brought you up or were you born this way? And a corollary to that is if you have siblings and if they're similar to you and that they do all this crazy shit. That's a really good question. Um, you know, my my mom, she's in her mid, 
mid to late 70s now. And she's one of the most enduringly curious people I know. She took up poetry, um, I think, two years ago. And she is part of a writing group and and does that. But that's a recent thing. You know, growing up, she, she didn't do a lot of crazy adventures or a lot of stuff. She was more, um, you know, she stayed at home and, uh, and helped raise us. Um, but I think, I think she's always been a curious person. So that's probably a component of it. Um, my dad, I can't, I can't say that he's, I can't say that he's extraordinarily adventurous, but what he probably instilled in me was a sense of, if you want to do something, do it, you know, and you've got to put in the work and you've got to just commit to it to make it happen because there will always be something preventing you. Um, but yeah, neither of them are, you know, we lived a pretty traditional life. My dad was like a financial advisor and ran a furniture store for a period of time. Um, and kind of just grew up in the Midwest. So nothing, nothing that crazy in terms of the, the nurture piece. Okay. Score one for nature. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of outdoor and mountainous activities. So you've Bike the highest paved road in the U.S. You climbed uh, Long's Peak, the highest peak in Rocky Mountain National Park. You've been to ten national parks since Phi. So, can you talk about some of that stuff? And I mean, outdoors seems like it's a big part of your life. It's funny when you look at a list of all these these things. Like as as we were preparing for this talk, I I didn't I don't consciously think about this on a daily basis. You know, it's not something huge to me, but it was more like. I looked back and I said, well, what have, what has happened over the past two and a half years? And I was reading through this list and I was like, wow, there's quite a bit there. Um, but it's not like I think of myself as some like crazy adventurer, um, who's, who's out doing all these things. These, these pieces with the, the national parks and the, the peak, um, actually climbing the peak is a good one to start because that came out of this whole Phi community. Um, you know, I met, I met Carl, um, and he was one of the first people I met in this community. Maybe that was right around two and a half years ago, right? Yeah, sounds about right. And uh, and then uh, there's a, a local hiking group, which is how I met you as well, Doug. And um, after doing a bunch of hikes with that group, there's there's one guy in the group who's particularly in shape and always doing hikes. And he had mentioned longs, and I latched onto it and was like, longs. And then everyone else kind of moved on and I was like longs 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 <laughs> and so uh and so we we put together a crew and after a couple of weather cancellations um went and did that one and that one was super fun I think it's like 14 and a half miles or something and it's a lot of they call it like a technical hike and so there's areas where if you're not careful you I mean people have died climbing it if you're not you know, if you're careless and, or I don't know what happens, but you lose your hold in certain areas, you could fall off. And, and so that's how that one happened. The, the national parks and a lot of these others, those are a byproduct, you know, it's doing things outside and the outdoors are something that has always been really inspiring. And then especially with COVID when there weren't a lot of like urban activities, had to get the the boys out of the house. I've got two, two boys and had to get them out of the house, wanted to do fun things. And that just started involving a lot of camping and things. And I look back and I'm like, Oh, 10 national parks. And that's something, you know, in the past two and a half years. 
Awesome. Do you have any uh, like upcoming plans for other other parks or anything like that? I always buy a national park pass every year because when it's in your wallet, then you come across it and you're like, oh, I got it. You know, that sunk cost, baby. $80. I got to use that thing. Um, and so I'm sure there'll be more. Um, you know, we talked about going to Utah and and there's a bunch of national parks there that we'd love to, to go see as well. Um, so, yeah, I see that continuing. And I mean, the, the cool thing, maybe this is a good segue to a point I'd love to make about the cost of all these things is like national parks how much does that cost? You know, I buy this $80 pass. I get to go to countless national parks in a year. Camping, if you do it on a national forest land, is totally free. And so getting out and doing some of these things, I think there's this impression that they cost a lot of money or take a lot of time. Um, I actually looked into this uh, maybe about a year ago. Like I searched bucket lists of things people have wanted to do online and the top 10 things on the list, you could do any of those in less than a week and spending less than a thousand dollars. You know, there were things like skydiving or seeing the Northern lights, I think was on there. Scuba diving might've been on there, you know, a number of things. So these, these things are not expensive and they don't have to take a lot of time. I think it's about committing to them, kind of choosing how you want to allocate your, the time you do have. Um, I think I got a little off topic. Did I answer your question or did I meander? No, that was a perfect, it was a different answer to a better question. So that was, <laughs> that was really good. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. I mean, part of it is like making that commitment. And a, a lot of times people don't have the time or they don't think they have the time, but it's really a matter of like prioritizing those activities over other things that are maybe um, like watching Cobra Kai, for example, right? There's three seasons. You could burn a lot of time doing that. Well, I still careful. watch those seasons though, Doc. <laughs> you can have it all. That, that's the other point. Yeah, you can have it all. You can watch Cobra Kai and visit national parks. Well, and maybe there's a, I mean, this is mile high fi, you know? And the the thing about fi is, if I look at my life, I did fit in some crazy adventures before Fi. You know, before we had kids, my wife and I traveled around the world for six months, stuff like that. But my biggest focus was was Fi. I didn't know it. You know, I I characterize it as I'm trying to get ahead. We would save a lot of money. We would we would invest and kind of pave our financial future. But these sorts of things, you know. You, you have the bandwidth to do that once you once you get in in that situation where you where you are fi and it's one of those things you know I want to come back to like Carl you brought this up how you've got a bucket list but maybe you don't look at it very often you know and I don't I don't look at mine as much as I used to um, you know and some of the things on the list like I started teaching this college class that is grown into something bigger, you know, and that sometimes these are experiments to find things that you, uh, that you really want to latch onto. But these things, they're not the meaning in your life, but they are, they are something. And 
if something meaningful does come up, you will not do them. You know, if I get cancer or my wife is diagnosed with something, we're not going to be off doing these. I'm going to be focusing on the things that really matter. You know, if something else happens, there's any variety of things that could prevent these things. And so doing them personally, my feeling on it, and I, I love to hear your guys' take on this as well, but personally, my feeling on it is if you're in a spot where you can do them, do them, you know, why not? Why not do them now? Because there is so much that could happen. You know, I do think there's value in, as cheesy as it sounds, not forgetting those, those childhood dreams and those things that kind of, kind of motivate you. I don't know what's, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear your take on some of this stuff, Doug, because I think of like where we all are in our FI journey and where, where you're at, um, how do you think of these things in your life? So in just bucket, I'll, I'll pretend it's all around like bucket list type items. So, yeah, yeah. I, and I don't have like a traditional um, list, but a similar activity that's in the four hour work week, Tim Ferriss is dreamlining, which is you write your dreams, you put a timeline on it. And my wife and I did that in roughly early 2014. And similar to what you guys said, I mean, you end up with some things that are very doable and you can figure out how to do do it and start making progress quickly. Some other things are just kind of dumb and I was just interested that week and I it quickly fell off and I didn't pay attention. So the interesting thing that happened is I ended up doing most of those things even though I literally never went back to look at it. So there's something about writing it down having a conversation. It was really only probably like an hour and a half or two that we invested. And yeah, like I said, we've done most of those things. Some of the big highlights, like one was to move to Colorado and have a view of the mountains, which we actually, we did better. We moved to Bozeman first and then, then we ended up in Colorado, which is, <laughs> it's great here. Our view of the mountains is worse. You have to get on the edge of the yard and then you can Bozeman's see like a little to be. It's a nice view. It's, uh, and we, we were right there, you know, so, and then the, another great one was, um, visiting all 50 States, which I was relatively close, but that's another thing you, you can do fairly cheaply, um, over the course of time. So any given trip, or if you added it all up, if it'd be tough to do in a week or whatever, but over time, and then, uh, driving to Alaska was awesome. So you were talking about Canada and some of those stretches where there's not much, it's most of where we drove. So, um, but yeah, and I, I kind of like you said, I, I don't remember the original question, but yeah, I mean, I think write, writing things down and then you could figure out what's important or not. And then you'll end up doing more than you think, yeah. even though you're not revisiting that list. It was remarkable going back and seeing like, oh shit, I need to come up with another list now. So I've actually done that in the last year because I ticked off the stuff that I wanted to do. I like that piece about, you know, once you write it down, you kind of describe it as then it was like almost ingrained in you. You didn't go back to the list, but then you look back and you did all these things. It kind of makes me wonder like, at what point was I just doomed to have to dive for sunken treasure? You know, I had written it down. I, I had put it in my brain and then that seed had taken hold. Like that's, that's interesting. Well, one thing I've realized with my own journey is my goals have kind of evolved in that they're not 
a single thing anymore. It's not like I want to climb this mountain or do this and this. They're more long-term goals that revolve around a journey or something bigger. And I can think of three of them. One is to learn Spanish. So that'll probably take me at least a year to become, to achieve some level of fluency. Another one is to play this particular Chopin piece on the piano. And the third one is just to travel around the country for a year or two in an RV. So it's not one specific thing. I guess in some ways it is because I'm working up to becoming fluent in Spanish or playing this piece on the piano. But the real value for me is the journey and making these little improvements every day. I see the Spanish word that I didn't know a week ago and now I know it and it feels great. Or learning how to get through a particular hard, particularly hard piece on this, on this piece on the piano. So it's the, it's the journey. It's not these one big things, these big grandiose things. I want to stand at the top of Everest, which I never want to do by, by the way, but they're more these long-term things. And uh, some of them, uh, I guess, revolve around self-improvement too. Yeah. Trying to improve a skill. I like that. I like that. You know, people call these things bucket lists and I've always hated that term. I think I, I write a lot about it on the site I run just like not a bucket list because the term bucket list conjures up this idea of like, Oh, these are things you have to do before you die. Or you're like old and on your deathbed and before you kick the bucket, you fit this in. And that shouldn't be what it's about. You know, it should be more about kind of like building things over time, your learning, your progression. And these things are kind of like the, maybe they're the adventures that spur you on that path or inspire you, but often they're not like the thing, you know, the end all. And I wish there was a better term. Actually, there's, I think it was, yeah, it was uh, President Obama in like his final term. Someone asked him, do you have a bucket list? And his response was, I have something that rhymes with bucket list. <laughs> and he was like, passing immigration reform? Bucket. You know, stuff like and there is something about that. Like, you don't want to get married to this list stagnantly. Like, I have to do these things. It's more like, where do you want to focus your energies and the, uh, the sort of development along the way? Mm -hmm. So... I think I'm going to sort of rewind a little bit because, you know, you're in this position of Phi and your wife still works, right? Mm -hmm. But but technically you guys have hit Phi and you have a lot of flexibility, which is great. So it, it sounded like you were saving to get ahead. But when when did you start following uh, like any of the, the principles and really thinking about it? Like, hey, I'm going to like we are going to retire much earlier than you know, the, the prescribed um, script? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Um, it was probably around the time that I met Carl and started the blog. Maybe I can give you credit for this, Carl. Well, in, in truth, you were the first, uh, first person I met with face-to-face -face in the Phi community. And one of the first blogs I started reading was 1500 Days. Um, and then I think Mr. Money Mustache and a bunch of others. Um, but yeah, it was, it was right around then. And I never thought, you know, up until then, I never thought about phi as a thing. Um, I, I always just thought about getting ahead. And so, uh, I think, let's see, 
the piece about are we going to retire and how we're going to live is more complicated. And it might even be, I mean, it could be an entire podcast in and of itself, because as you mentioned, my wife does still work. I am working, but I'm working on other things. You know, I do some of these adventures. I have a lot of projects going. I was talking to someone about this the other day, how um, my kids think of me as working, but we live very different lives. And so she's not retired. I don't think of myself as retired, but I do think of myself as Phi um, in the sense that the community thinks of Phi. And I didn't know about that concept two and a half years ago, you know? Okay. Very interesting because there's a lot of, um, I've been getting a lot more involved in the community and some of the events at the Mr. Money Mustache HQ. And there are, you know, people that have followed, you know, very closely. They've read, you know, all, all of, uh, all of Pete's blog post and, and all of Carl's and they're, they're very into it. It's awesome. And I kind of came into it sideways also where, I just re- realized that, you know, maybe casually was aware, but didn't follow it as closely as some people. Yeah. So it's, it's just interesting. It's, you know, there's a wide range. Some people do come in sideways like, like we did a little bit. So yeah. do you remember how you found Carl's blog? Just curious. What'd you, what'd you search for? Wow. That's what kind a, of weird thing do you That's a for? really good question. <laughs> you know, and the searching, the more intense reading about this began after that meeting with that VC where he said, this is the happiest you'll ever be. And I started thinking, if I'm going to transition away from working for money and toward working for happiness, how do you be happy? You know, and like, what is the equation that involves work and leisure and all kinds of other things? And I imagine I searched something along those lines, like, if I don't need to work for money, what do I work on? Or like, you know, or if I have enough money, now what? It was probably some search like that. And, uh, you know, the models I always had as a kid for when you're rich is like Robin Leach, you know, like lifestyles of the rich and famous. And I knew I didn't want that. I wanted the independence, but not the extravagance. And, uh, and that's how, you know, and then I found, Hey, there's a bunch of people that are, that are into this. Okay. And were you index fund investing like prior to that? Or did you have your own, if you want to share, feel, feel free to just skip that question. So, you know, I mentioned my father was a financial advisor and he he did a lot of broad it wasn't index investing. His whole life he's he's done I wouldn't call it stock picking because it's not highly concentrated, it's highly diversified across all the sectors of the market, but he's still very into that. So that was my education growing up. And it's really been a continuum for me to consider indexing versus um versus uh you know, more that, that broad based, but choosing stocks approach. And, uh, I will say that today I, I invest a lot more in indexes than I do individual things. Um, and, and so that's, that's been my progression, but yeah, that's a, I could talk all about investing. It's, oh, yeah. I'm sure we all could <laughs> next episode. Hey, (laughs) (laughs) and I was going to say, just, you know, thinking of the index fund, like when we were trying to figure out how to invest, my wife and I, we didn't have like the background that you probably did with your father being an expert and, you know, pro in that area. So it's just so much more stress to actually pick things versus, um, an index fund, which is, 
uh, super lazy, which fits exactly how I want to invest. So, yeah, I mean, on, on that investing front, you know, officially the way it's written up this, this whole like treasure, uh, dive thing I did is, is officially an investment, right? Because I put a thousand dollars into it to get 1%. And for that, I get to dive a bunch and, you know, it's, it's a pretty darn good deal, but that's officially an investment, right? And if I lose that, I could write it off as a loss, you know, um, as I've been fi, I've undertaken a lot more sort of active investments like real estate stuff. You know, I, I still do a little bit of that on the side just for, cause I enjoy it. And, um, it's something I got good at over the years when I wasn't fi, you can put your time to things in whatever way you choose. But I think I'd, I'd do more of that sort of weird active alternative investment stuff with small amounts of cash than I did before, which is probably an interesting, interesting piece post-fi. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes sense because you have um, some, you know, other interests that you could explore. You can have um, investments that maybe don't return as much. And it's a smaller dollar amount, it sounds like. So mm -hmm. what were you going to say, Chris? Sorry. Oh, I was just, I was going to ask Carl if, if your experience was similar or different than that. I mean, I know you've done a number of, a number of sort of real estate investments and stuff. Do you think your, your active investment stuff has gone up post-fi? Uh, so we have a bunch of different investments and I like to tell people like we go where the opportunity is, uh, for example, we did a bunch of syndication deals, but those were years ago, and now the real estate market is so hot that the returns on them returns on them just aren't worth the risk. I believe, at least the ones I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, I still own individual stocks, uh, although I don't really believe in that much anymore. Uh, stock picking is so hard because disruption, the pace of disruption, has increased. Uh, you think of BlackBerry and RIM and Nokia, like they were huge 2005 2006 and i think those companies still might be around but they're a shadow of where they formerly formerly were uh you think of the disruption now going on with the auto industry it wouldn't surprise me if toyota or honda and this is sounds like a insane statement but it wouldn't surprise me if one or both are bankrupt by 2030 because they've been late and they're still resistant to electric cars and that's where the future is going so you might be able to pick a winner. And I have, I've been successful in doing that. But if you write it back down to zero, when that company is disrupted, then it means absolutely nothing and you've lost money. So I think there's so much value to index investing. And just what Doug said, the laziness of it all, you can pick it all. And then Vanguard manages the winners for me. If, if Apple does great, poof, I own more of it because it's weighted that way. And if they don't, then I don't own so much of it anymore. So there, there's tremendous value in index investing. And that's where all, all our money goes to, or most of it. With that said, if uh, we have invested in some, the last real estate deal we did was a very small syndication with someone we, we knew personally. We've talked to him many times. And we're not so much investing in the deal in, as we're investing in that person because I think he has a he's very competent and I think he'll He'll make it work. I think that's how a lot of investing is too. Like with, uh, I've bought all of Musk's stuff. I tried to buy SpaceX too, but I've bought PayPal, um, Tesla. Just it's not because of the company; it's because I believe in him 
And I think he could probably make most things work. But yeah, um, index investing is the right answer for 99.9% .9 of people. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like when you're talking about things outside of that, I think is is tricky because you have to consider everyone's unique financial situation and their unique strengths. You know, and I'll give one example of that is I've got a background in startups. My wife is still very active in startups. Because of that, we have access to say like venture capital investments, you know, because we wouldn't be what they call dumb money. We would be more educated money and especially her more than me since she's still very active in it. Um, I wouldn't advise anyone trying to be fi to go into that, you know, in our unique financial situation where we're at and with our unique access, something like that might make a lot more sense. And so it, it's, it's tricky. And I agree with you, like the, the answer for people and for 99% of people plus is index it time in the market, not timing the market, not stock picking, but indexing. And then if you're going beyond that, you're looking at some, you know, advanced, advanced topics with questionable return. <laughs> right. And, and in all those people can find examples where folks were successful, like, like you, Carl, right. You've been really, really successful, but there's a lot of survivorship bias. So we're not hearing the people that picked the wrong ones. They lost all their money because no one's talking about those. I mean, those are probably a lot more plentiful than people that did as well as you, you have Carl, you've done really well. It's been crazy. Yeah. A lot of that's luck. Just, uh, it's a combination of me being obsessed with technology and being a, an extremely stubborn person to traits that probably aren't very good, but they, in a very small way, they worked well for me. It's good timing. Yeah. Good timing. All right. Well, I think I'm looking through some of the notes here. Carl, do you have any other like big, big questions here? Yeah, I, I do have one big question for you, which is totally not on our list here. But I'll start off with this list. Like we have a huge list of showing this to the camera for those watching on YouTube of all these things Chris likes. And my counterpoint to this is I, I've actually known a couple people who have gone back to work because they've been bored and they did not know what to do with themselves. And Along those same lines, I heard a pretty snarky quote a couple of years ago. It said, only only boring people get bored. And at first I thought, yeah, that, that's probably right. But then I thought, no, nah, it's probably not right. I think everyone has things that they want to do that they would enjoy. They just haven't figured them out yet. What would you say to someone who either quit and they're bored and they're going to go back to work or they're worried about boredom if they leave their work? Good question. I mean, I think the... If you're quit, if you quit and you're bored, that's a that's a tougher question probably because then the question is what are your options, you know? Um, and I think, I mean, whether it's work or anything else, I think you should. If you're going back, it should be for the right reasons. I don't think you just run back. But better than being in that situation is the first one you mentioned. Like, do you quit work if you're worried about being bored? And my answer is obviously well. Maybe it's not obvious, but no, you don't like, don't leave your job and then figure out what to do. Um, I did that right. As we've talked about this, the, f when I wound down that startup the first time I just left and took some time off and I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what I would do. And I ended up being mildly depressed and just not motivated. Um, the second time I did it, I did it differently. You know, I came up with what, 
what is my day really going to look like if I do this? And what are some of the things I want to do? When I left, I didn't leave saying I'm retiring forever. I left saying, I want to do these things now because I can. And that's kind of been the theme of this talk, you know, like achieving these things now while I'm in this position where I can. And then later, if I want to go back to work or I want to do whatever, I can I can make that choice as I go along. I think this thing about only boring people get bored is this is my own opinion. It's easy to say that when you're young. And the reason why is I remember being in my 20s and coming back from the weekend into work and it'd be like, what did you do this weekend? What did you do this weekend? Right? And everyone had a list. Like I went to this friend's party and then I saw this band and then I went and did this, you know, 5k downtown and life is so busy and there's so many opportunities and things going on. I contrast that with an old coworker. I said, and this was when I was in my maybe late 20s, early 30s. He was more closer to retirement. And he said, you're at the age where doors are all opening up. I'm at the age where doors are all closing. You know, like I may not be employable in a while. My friends are getting sick. You know, things are happening. And I think as you get older, I don't know this, you know, like I'm, I, I'm 41, um, you know, just in my early 40s. So I don't know what the future looks like, but I do think that finding those outlets as you get older for the human needs you have is trickier. They're not designed in for you. And especially if you're fi and you don't have a traditional job, you don't have built into your day that feeling of achievement, that community, um, people needing you, you know? And so you need to you need to build those things. And so whatever builds those things in your life is, is what I would recommend to that guy who left work and is bored. And then the guy who's thinking about leaving, make sure you've got those systems and you've really thought through them would be the other piece of it, right? Yeah, I think that's huge, Chris. Uh, if you build your life around your job and you don't have anything else going on, you probably will be bored if you quit work. I, th I think the key is to try to build a, a rich life all the time. And I think that speaks to something. I, it, this is a topic near and dear to my heart because my dad, all he cared about was his job. He validated himself with his work. And when he couldn't work anymore because the economy went into the dumper, and they didn't need electricians anymore. It just devastated him because he had nothing else. His life was his work. Uh, so yeah, try to figure things out when you're young and embrace a, embrace a life that's not necessarily um, that revolves around your work uh, ahead of time. So you can be more resilient when your work does end or if you decide to move on to something else. I think one one option, you know, folks may have, especially if you've been successful and you, you know, reach five or, or some level where you can leave your job, you're probably good at some stuff and you probably can mentor or help or coach um, other people, younger folks that don't have the same experience as you. Even young guys like us in our early 40s can uh can, you know, Carl's a little bit older, even more experienced. He's, he's like a mentor to me. What's I mean, older than Carl's what's like older? my mentor? I'll say right. that. Like, I think of him as a mentor, wise yeah. and grizzled. That's right. Yeah. 
I, I hate you both. <laughs> but but the point there's there's a real point which is oh yeah you, you can mentor and in fact I I did that for a small uh, it, it's technically a startup accelerator but it's not an IT like a tech sort of angle but it's called E for All and I mentored you know it's usually small businesses under five people or so and they're they're just trying to get started and they they're usually trying to do it on the side so. That's been really cool from a relationship standpoint because you do get to meet other mentors and that sort of thing. But also you're helping like a small company get started. And it, it, it's usually very community-based. So yeah. the it was like a Longmont business that I helped out. So have you done any like advising or mentoring or anything like that? Yeah, I I, I have. I like, I, I love what you said um, because there's always this, you know, when I left the startup land, I left 60, 80 hour a week sometimes to zero hours a week. And so it's like, you know, hundred miles an hour to zero. And, uh, the dream I think in my mind is something where like, I have the perfect amount of work. And the problem is the perfect amount of work, you know, let's say it's 20 hours a week. Who wants to hire a leader at 20 hours a week? You just, you can't get that. But what you said, when you can mentor and when you can step in, um, you can you can have those cool roles and you can still do them for less hours and and I love that balance I've you know since leaving I've come back and kind of um done some startup stuff you know met with uh with founders who have particular challenges and they're sometimes they're just looking for an outside voice cuz they're too close to it and I come in there sometimes it's more like technical and I've got a lot of medical device experience. And so it's some of that. And so stepping back into that world is kind of fun. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I have this whole, whole alter ego that was, you know, that, that I still know. Um, and then the other thing I do, you know, I, I think I mentioned teaching, um, I teach some college courses and that, that wasn't a design. It kind of came out of like, I guess, judged some final projects for a, 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 old colleague of mine who was teaching. And then one thing led to another and I started teaching and kind of like, like you were getting at when you, when you can, when you have all the answers, you know, it's fun to have all the answers one and, it, and two, it's really fun to help people. And three, I always learn quite a bit from those, those students. And so that's turned into a, uh, to something as well, just kind of, uh, teaching more and, um, I, I don't see it as a job, you know, it's very little time commitment. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, uh, it's one of those things, you know, when I, a moment ago, I talked about like building systems and as you get older, what are your outlets going to be? I happen to have this college right in my town and, uh, that could be an outlet as I get older, you know, the older you get, the more credible you are as a professor, right? If you have like a grizzled white beard, like Carl. No, <laughs> I feel like we're making a lot of age jokes, but you're like, what, two years older than us or something? <laughs> anyway, as you get older, he's he's staying silent. Carl's just like, <laughs> if you were watching the video, you'd see him just like sneering at me. <laughs> no, as you get older, you're a more credible professor. So maybe that's something I could do into old age. Right. <laughs> and what, what do you teach? Oh, it's... It's a uh, case studies in design sort of class. So it's a bunch of engineers and scientists and teach them how do you uh, 
you know, how do you find out what a problem is and solve it for customers and interact with customers and go through the whole design process? They all know the engineering principles of how to make things. They learn that in their other classes. But often the mindsets to be successful, you know, in business or new product development are very different than those really concrete engineering and physics and electrical principles and stuff like that. So that's, that's what I teach. And it's a nice fit because that's what I did for so many years. That's awesome. How, how many like semesters have you taught so far? So I am going to teach again in the fall. I took, I took the last semester off with COVID to kind of be there for uh, my kids as they went through the challenges of remote schooling and focus on some other things. Um, so this will be my third semester teaching. That's cool. Yeah, there's um, there's actually a community college not too far from here, and it's right next door to the Oscar Blues like uh, tap room. That'd be a cool place to teach. You know, right when you finish your oh, your stuff, yeah. you just pop over to the what's it called, the Weasel Room or something like that. What <laughs> is it? It's called the Tasty Weasel. Tasty. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. You know, funny thing, I haven't even been there yet. Like we. Uh, we love beer, right? This is something maybe we'll go on a tangent here unless Carl has a, do you have a, any meaty questions? No, I'm just shocked <laughs> that you haven't been there yet. Cause I think that place has the best beer in Longmont. So but they, <laughs> they do experimental stuff there that they don't sell to the public. So dude, you got to go. They also sell six packs for $72. So <laughs> some of it is enthusiastically priced, but sorry, go on, Doug. No, no. Well, I'm shocked. I, I thought it was like, I got to try that. They don't want to pay. I, <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing is, we thought it was like just a warehouse or something. So we're like, oh, whatever. And we never went by. So we still haven't been. And you actually pointed it out to me a couple of weeks ago. So it, it's on our list. And so you're a home brewer as well. And I'm going to give you some beer, by the way, to, to take home. That's all filled with beer behind there. So oh, yeah. Um, yeah, what's your beer story? Oh, my beer story. You mean like homebrewing? Oh, homebrewing. Yeah. So yeah. I've been homebrewing, you know, since since college when we like threw a potato and some sugar and water in a five gallon bucket and sat it by the radiator. <laughs> That's kind of like my initial, you know, baptism into brewing. Was, um, wait, was that prison or college? <laughs> I mean, you know, it was a large brick dorm. It was a lot like a prison. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then from there, I I went on. To, I've been brewing ever since. One of the things I told myself, it's not really like a, you know, a, I hate the word bucket list. There's got to be a better word than bucket list or term. But on my bucket list or my focus list was like, while I, I'm always going to have something on tap, you know? And so like, I try to do that. And if not on tap, I have bottles of homebrew. Um, and then, yeah, my, my homebrewing masterpiece, uh, I finally completed it. It was a Belgian sour brown and it's a multiple fermentation. And then you, you know, you kind of mix two ages, like an older batch and a younger batch to get the right flavor, flavor profile. And it took 18 months and I, I finished that. Um, and I still have a couple bottles left. Um, so that was a thrill just to like, to complete it. And then I, you know, after 18 months, I was worried I'd crack the top and it would just be like wet cardboard tasting. And the fact that it tasted, you know, successful, not perfect, but successful to me was, was great. So what? Awesome. That's very cool. Um, well, I think we can, 
start wrap wrapping her down or yeah i've got like billions of questions for chris but i think we should save that for another yeah. episode no one wants to listen to 12 hours or maybe someone does but we'll have a follow-up to this maybe with i know chris has more adventures coming up so <laughs> maybe you could quickly tell us what your next adventure is tell us about your site and then we'll wrap it up yeah so well i'll start with the site i am not i'm not as active on the site um as i used to be you know i have this site lifeoutsidethemaze.com i write occasionally there um but it's taken up less of my time these days so if you do go over there don't expect anything that frequent um <laughs> the next adventure is uh costa rica uh in two days i i leave to go there for a month um my wife got a a sabbatical um for a month which is awesome and uh you know, when we graduated from college, we went to Costa Rica for a month before we got our careers. And so now being at this different stage in life with two kids, we're returning and I'm really excited to see what it's like because there was a beach we camped on, for example. This is one example of how much Costa Rica has changed. Um, we camped on this beach in Tamarindo and literally there is a JW Marriott built on the site today. <laughs> And so Costa Rica has transformed and I'll be, I'll be interested to see what it's, what it's like now. Um, and then after that, it's into, uh, you know, hopefully fitting in another uh, dive on the 1715 project before I start teaching in the fall. Cool. And I have, I wanted to squeeze this in there. As you mentioned, the, the beer angle and the, that you've never been to that tap room. I have an idea for you guys. And the idea is... You should do a podcast episode where you bring in a bunch of people, you know, a bunch of five people, and everyone drinks a whole lot of beer, and then they all share their worst financial mistake, like after five beers apiece or something, <laughs> like as a panel. That'd be funny. I think, I think we could probably do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, there's talks to maybe own our own business, so maybe we do that at that place at that point in time. So. Chris, well, we might make you have 10 so we could get a really juicy story out of you. <laughs> it's not good enough. Drink another one. That could get scary. <laughs> All right, Chris, this has been uh, awesome. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this morning. Thanks, guys. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you, Chris.